Okay, we're going to be in Acts chapter 18 today. Acts chapter 18. We'll go ahead and get started and uh, probably be some more joyous throughout the service here, but uh, that'll be all right. Okay, uh, while you're finding your place, let's go ahead and we'll go to the Lord in prayer, and then we'll get into our study today. Dear Lord, we come to you today. Thank you for your blessings. We thank you for all that you do for us and for loving us, for taking care of us, Lord. We thank you for the opportunity that we have to be here in church. And Lord, we're thankful for those who have gathered out here today, Lord. We just pray, asking that you'd meet with us here. I just pray that you would uh, just work through your word and uh, just pray that you would uh, instruct our hearts and draw us closer to you. I just pray that you would guide and give me wisdom and uh, clarity, Lord, that I'd be able to teach the things that we've studied and Lord, that I would be faithful to your word. I just pray that uh, it would be a help to those who are gathered. I pray, Lord, that you please be with those who are still on their way out this morning, that you'd watch over them as they come, be with those who are uh, away, traveling, working in different things, that you'd watch over them. Lord, be with those who are sick, and I just pray help them recovering. Lord, we just thank you so much for being so good to us today, Lord. I just pray, uh, ask you once again, Lord, just to, to help us, to guide us, to strengthen us. And all these things I pray in Jesus' name. And amen. Amen. <laughs> Okay, so last week what we were looking at is in Acts chapter 18, Paul was at Corinth. He's been uh, on his second missionary journey and going through from place to place. And we said last week that uh, his, his methods, his manner is changed just a little bit in this second missionary journey. In the first one, he was quickly hopping from place to place, right? He would come into the city, he would uh, preach for, he, he, well, he would meet in the synagogues, he would uh, teach, he would preach for just a little bit of time, there would be a group of people get saved, uh, he'd kind of organize them into a little church and he'd move on. And he was hopping from place to place, but whenever he got to Corinth, he stayed in Corinth for a couple of years. He spent quite a bit of time there, getting them rooted and grounded in the faith, Um that also gave him time to be in the same region, the same country, I guess you could say, as several other churches, such as uh, Thessalonica, Berea, and different ones, Philippi. And it seems as if they had communications back and forth with one another, that as he was there ministering, that it gave him time to be sending out messengers and uh, writing letters and uh, uh, trying to grow and to build up his uh, his fellow believers, his converts. And as he was in uh, Corinth, God gave him a bit of peace of mind in that uh, he said, I have many people here. I have a great work for you to do here. The harvest is plentiful here. And so I'm going to leave you here for a while. And so he did. He stayed there for a good while. There was a uh, political action that was brought up against him. He was brought before the the Greek leadership and they said we're not going to fool with this it's a matter of uh, you and the Jews squabbling about religion and things if it was a civil matter if it was uh, if it was a major problem a legal problem or something we would deal with it but since it's just you uh, squabbling about religion we want nothing to do with that threw the Jews out and um, that gave the Christians a lot of freedom to minister there because um, the Jews found that they didn't have a, a foothold. They couldn't use uh, the, the government as a weapon against them. And so anyway, anyway, they took a good bit of time there 
in Corinth and uh, was able to do a great work. There was a, uh, a lot of people who got saved in Corinth. And we know that in our Bible, we have two different letters that were pinned to the Corinthian church, First and Second Corinthians, right? And they're the ones that we often characterize as being uh, the carnal church, right? Uh, out of all of the churches, you know, you have uh, Philippi was the ones that was a great blessing and encouragement to Paul, right? Uh, you have uh, different churches that had different things, different characteristics to them. But the church at Corinth is the one that we usually talk about its carnality. But a large portion of our New Testament, two letters, lengthy letters, were written to the church at Corinth. Paul spent a lot of time there. He uh, did a lot of work there, and it was actually a, a great success story in Paul's ministry. Okay, And the reason I say that is uh, one of the things I brought out last week was though Corinth was a carnal church, it came out of one of the most depraved backgrounds. The city of Corinth was extremely wicked. Uh, it had every vice known to man there, uh, idolatry and uh, all kinds of sexual deviance and sins and things like that. And so Paul was coming in, dealing with some of the most ungodly, most depraved people, and they were coming to the Lord, and God was doing a work in them, lifting them up basically out of the gutter and making something out of them. And so whenever we uh, maybe are tempted to be critical of the church at Corinth for being carnal, we need to realize the background of what they're coming from, okay? Uh, Paul wasn't dealing with uh, a refined group of people. He wasn't dealing with a moral or a religious group of people. He was getting those out of the gutter, and God was doing the work in their lives, refining them, and he did a, uh, a great work in Corinth bringing up a church in that place, Okay. And that also gives us an idea of why it took Paul so long in Corinth. He had a long way to go. They had a lot they needed to learn. Basically, he was starting from the bottom up. Uh, I know I was talking with, with Bruno before we got started. He was looking at our tracks and said we needed uh, maybe to find something that would deal with someone who has, a, uh, has no knowledge whatsoever of Christianity or the things of God. This is what Paul was dealing with in Corinth, people who uh, were starting from the very bottom, right? And so anyway, Paul spent this time in Corinth, and whenever his time was over there, uh, that's where we come to in uh, our passage today. And let's look at uh, let's look at Acts chapter eighteen, starting down in verse number eighteen. It says, "And Paul, after this, tarried there yet a good while, and then took his leave of the brethren and sailed thence into Syria, and with him Priscilla and Aquila." having shorn his head in century before he had a vow. And he came to Ephesus and left them there, but he himself entered into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they desired him to tarry longer time with them, he consented not, but bade them farewell, saying, I must by all means keep this feast that cometh in Jerusalem, but I will return again unto you, if God will. And he sailed from Ephesus, and when he had landed at uh, Caesarea, and going up and saluted the church, he went down to Antioch, and after he had spent some time there, he departed and went all over the country of Galatia and Phrygia in order strengthening all the disciples. And so in those six verses that we just read, uh, Paul covered a lot of ground. 
he went uh, many, 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 many kilometers in that short amount of uh, scripture that we read. But it tells us here that after he was thrown out, or well, not thrown out, after he was taken before the the city leaders there in Corinth and the case was thrown out, that he stayed for a good while. And then whenever he left, he took his two new friends with him. We talked last week about Priscilla and Aquila, right? Mm-hmm. He came there to uh, Corinth. He was by himself. He, his ministry companions had stayed behind in other places of work. And he came into Corinth by himself. He was discouraged. He was dejected. Uh, he had seen uh, a, lot of, uh, a lot of persecution. And all of these things would have caused him to be a little bit, a little bit down. Okay? And so whenever he came to Corinth, rather than going directly to the synagogue like he normally did, instead he found Priscilla and Aquila. He found fellow believers. God had provided him with someone that could be an encouragement to him. And it's amazing to me how often we find that in Scripture, that God knows exactly what we need and when we need it. And we've seen this on Wednesday nights as we've been looking at David. Whenever David was down and out, whenever he was discouraged, whenever he was saying, I'll one day die at the hand of Saul, that out of the middle of nowhere, here comes Jonathan. Saul's looking everywhere, can't find him, but Jonathan comes and strengthens him in the Lord, right? And God has a way of bringing about those times of encouragement whenever we need them. And so uh, Aquila and Priscilla uh, became great friends, great companions of his. And we find that throughout Paul's ministry, they keep in contact with one another. There are times whenever uh, Paul's writing the letter to the Romans, right? To the church that is in Rome. And as he's signing off on it, he is uh, greeting Priscilla and Aquila, right? So they're in Rome, they're in Ephesus, they're in Corinth, they're traveling all over the place, and Paul's keeping in contact with them, and they are a great blessing to him. But anyway, um, as he leaves Corinth, Aquila and Priscilla go with him and travel with him to Ephesus. It says here, just as almost a little bit of a footnote, that he shaved his head in Centuria because he had a vow. Okay, Now that might not seem like a whole lot of anything to us, but there's two different things in this. Uh, passage that we read that is interesting to me, the fact that he had a vow and the fact that he wanted to get to Jerusalem for the feast, right? Because if you think about this, this is Apostle Paul. This is the one that has thrown off Judaism and he has embraced Christianity, that he says that we are no longer under the law, but we are under grace. But in these two occasions, we find him still doing a couple things that are very much Jewish, right? And so this idea of him uh, shaving his head because he had a vow, this means that he had a Nazarite vow. We can read about it back in the law, that the, the vow of the Nazarite for a time, they would appoint a time, they would not cut their hair, they would not be defiled by any dead body, they would not drink any uh, fruit of the vine or eat any fruit of the vine, no wine, no grapes, no raisins, or nothing. And so there was these things that they would not do, um, just to give maybe a little bit of purpose behind it, uh, depriving themselves of any of the fruit of the vine, those would be those would be things that were a pleasure to the flesh, right? Things that they would enjoy, good food. So they said, for this time, we're not going to be eating these things. We're not going to be drinking these things. Uh, the idea of not shaving their head, we are not cutting their hair. Uh, we read in other places in Scripture, especially for the Jews, 
that it was a um, uh, a shame for a man to have long hair, right? And so for them to grow their hair out long, it would be something that would humiliate them. It would bring shame to them. And so that's another thing that this Nazarite vow would do. They're depriving themselves of the flesh. They are uh, making themselves uh, ashamed in a way. And also that they wouldn't be able to defile themselves by a dead body. That means that they couldn't participate in uh, funerals. They couldn't participate in any kind of events for their loved ones, right, if they had passed away. And so it had to do with their relationships, with their image of themselves, with their enjoyment and things. They were saying, we're going to separate from these things for a time to devote ourselves to God. And we're going to separate ourselves almost in a manner of fasting, okay? We're going to separate ourselves from these things so we may devote ourselves to God. And even after Paul is a Christian, even with all the teachings that he's teaching, he still saw fit, he still uh, desired to make this vow. And why I'm bringing this out is though Paul was a Christian, though he was no longer keeping the law, he was no longer practicing Judaism, he was still a Jew, right? And there's many things that still follow along as we're Christians. There are many things that we still have that are part of our culture. And this is something that was part of his culture. This was something that he enjoyed. This was something that he probably believed brought him closer to God, maybe brought him closer to the Jews that he was seeking to reach, right? And so Paul decided he had the liberty. It wasn't that he was uh, doing this to obtain the salvation. It wasn't that he was doing this in some way to bargain with God or to uh, get God's favor, but this was something that he was doing because he wanted to. And he had liberty to do such, right? And so this is what he's done. And there's many things within our own cultures, and we have diversity of cultures represented here and with other folks that come out. And there are a lot of things that there is nothing <coughs> wrong with them, and there's nothing wrong with us participating in those and practicing those as long as they don't go against the Scripture, they don't go against uh, the things of God, and we're not relying on those for our relationship with God. Okay. Uh, the other one that I mentioned here is that he, um, verse number 21, he bade them farewell, saying, I must by all means keep this feast that cometh in Jerusalem, but I will return to you. Uh, whenever he came to Ephesus, they wanted him to stay. They begged him to stay. That's something he wasn't used to, right? Whenever he would come, he'd meet with them in the synagogue. They'd get tired of him. They'd kick him out, right? But now the, the Jews at the synagogue are begging him to stay, and he says, I can't because I have purposed, I desire to get to Jerusalem in time for the Passover. I believe that was the feast that he was going to, okay? And the Passover was one of three feasts that was kept throughout the, the year, throughout the Jewish calendar, where most of the Jewish men were required to come to Jerusalem and take part in this feast. And now Paul, yeah, Paul was no longer required. He was no longer bound under the law. He didn't have to go there, but once again, he wanted it to go there. We find repeatedly that Paul has a burden for his countrymen. Paul has a burden for the Jews. He does whatever he can. There is a place in Scripture that tells us that Paul says that I've become all things to all men, that by all means I might win some, right? And he's not saying that he is two-faced or hypocritical. He's saying that he is willing to... Uh, 
willing to make sacrifices. He's willing to limit his liberties. He's willing to do things that is going to have an effect on those who are around him. He's willing to uh, intentionally make decisions that is going to make him more effective for the cause of Christ. And one of these things may be him going to Jerusalem to this feast where there's going to be lots of Jews present. There's going to be lots of Jewish Christians there and where Paul can go and be a witness to them, share the gospel with them, hopefully see some of his brethren saved, right? And so once again, Paul's not doing this because he is keeping Judaism, but this is part of his culture. This is part of his heritage. And it's something that he's still uh, participating in because he wants to, because he has a purpose for it, because it, and he has the liberty to do this, okay? If I would make a comparison, if I would uh, use as an illustration here, it would be like us keeping Christmas and Easter now, okay? Because is there any, any scriptural reason behind us celebrating Easter or Christmas? There's no commandment behind it. There's no, it is a tradition. It's something cultural, at least in the West, right? And so God doesn't command that we celebrate his birth. He doesn't command that we celebrate Easter and celebrate his resurrection, not in that way at least. But it's something that we enjoy doing. It, it would almost seem unchristian to us to not celebrate those things, wouldn't it? You know, if you come across someone, they're like, ah, no, I want nothing to do with Easter. I want nothing to do with Christmas. You'd be like, what are you, an atheist? <laughs> right? Yeah. But it's something that we have liberty to do. It's something that people enjoy, right? Paul, in another place, says that some men esteem every day alike. Some men esteem one day higher than others, right? And I'm paraphrasing. But this is the thing, is that, that Paul decided to celebrate these feast days, these holy days, and it was part of his culture. It was something that he enjoyed, and it was something that he saw uh, could help him in his ministry and reaching the lost. And so he's participating in these things. And so the next thing that I want to bring out of this passage that we just read, uh, not just our liberty to, to engage in these cultural things and, and continuing to do these things even after we're saved, continuing to do these things as long as they don't go against Scripture or we're not trying to build our identity or our acceptance with God on them. The other thing that I want to bring out of this passage is that whenever he came to Ephesus, and began to reason with them and teaching in the synagogue, uh, it says that they desired him to tarry longer with them. In our minds, he has an open door, right? He comes there and they're saying, please stay, continue teaching, continue talking, right? And he is not constrained. He does not have to keep the Passover. He's free as a Christian to ignore that, right? And they're begging him to stay and continue teaching and preaching. And so in our minds, or in my mind, I can't speak for you guys, it's like, why don't you stay? Why don't you stay here and preach? Why don't you do this work? Why don't you engage in this while the opportunity is here, right? That's the way that I would look at it. But for whatever reason, we don't know if he had made promises, if he had uh, appointments that he had, to, we don't know. But at this time, he chooses not to stay, okay? And what I want to bring out of this passage is the fact that just because we have an opportunity doesn't mean we have an obligation. 
Does that make sense? We talked about this a little bit on Wednesday night. I know most of you weren't here, but uh, opportunity does not equal obligation. Wednesday night we were talking about uh, David as he was running from Saul. He's been on the well, he's on the run from Saul for about ten years, right? And there's a time that Saul is in a cave, and David has an opportunity, right? Saul or David is in the cave. Saul just happens to stumble into the cave that David's in and doesn't know that David's there. David comes and cuts the bottom of his garment. Saul's probably laid it aside. It says that he went in to cover his feet. He's laid his garment aside, and David comes and chops off a portion of his robe. Okay? And all of David's men are saying, God has given you an opportunity. God has delivered your enemy up to you. Just kill him and take the throne. And all of their perspective was, you have an opportunity, you have an obligation to take it, right? Mm -hmm. But we have to evaluate every opportunity by the word and the will of God. That just because there's an opportunity doesn't mean that it is the will of God. And if we're not careful in our Christianity, we adapt almost a fatalistic approach that whenever, whenever opportunity arises, whenever the doors open, it's, well, this is the will of God. God is pushing me in this direction. We're automatically taking those steps because there's an opportunity there. But I don't believe opportunity equals obligation. With David, he had the opportunity to kill Saul, but he also had the opportunity to prove himself righteous. He also had the opportunity to prove himself a better man than what Saul is. See, Saul would have taken that opportunity in a heartbeat if the roles were reversed, wouldn't he? But that's what he was looking for from the beginning. Yeah. And so, yeah, Saul would have taken that opportunity in, the, in a heartbeat if the roles were reversed, but David didn't take that opportunity because he said, I can demonstrate my character. I can demonstrate my faith in God, right? Because David said repeatedly, I will not put my hand against God's anointed. He said repeatedly, in essence, if God wants to make me king, God's going to have to do it. I'm not going to do it myself. And so David operated by these principles and so whenever he looked at this opportunity, he said it's an opportunity to kill my enemy, but it's also an opportunity for me to glorify God. It's an opportunity for me to express faith. It's an opportunity for me to allow God to do what only God can do. And so opportunity does not necessarily equal obligation. And in our lives, we would be wise if we would evaluate the opportunities that come along. Um, and just to make a bit of a practical application of this. Uh, there will be uh, maybe jobs that come along, uh, maybe people that come along, maybe uh, whatever, fill in the blank, okay? And you say, I have this tremendous opportunity. I've got to take it, right? But then you step back and you weigh it out, you pray it out and say, is this the direction that God would have me to go? Because here's the thing, Satan can give you opportunities. Yeah. Satan can give you opportunities. Satan can open doors too. Yeah. And this is why we have to be walking with God. This is why we need to have a relationship with God, walking hand in hand with him, so that we know whenever the opportunities come, what God's will is for us in that opportunity. Okay? And so anyway, as he decides it's not the right time, I have the opportunity, 
but I'm just going to let it sit. For Paul, being as zealous of a minister as he was, for him being the zealous missionary that he was, for him to walk away from a fruitful harvest, as it seems he's doing, was in essence him putting faith in God like David did in that cave. He's saying, yes, there is a harvest here, but I don't have to rush into this. I don't have to seize this opportunity. If God is working here, if God's got something to be done, he can do it in six months just the same as he can do it right now. Okay? I know I've, I've counseled people many times. I said, beware of limited time offers. Beware whenever you feel rushed. Beware whenever you feel in a hurry to do something because God doesn't rush us. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm on the opposite end of the spectrum. I tend to drag my feet. Sometimes God has to push me along a little bit. <laughs> but he doesn't rush us. And so anyway, uh, Paul then decides to go onward, but it says that he leaves Priscilla and Aquila behind. Priscilla and Aquila have proven themselves. They are faithful companions. They are faithful in ministry. They are rooted and grounded in the faith. And so he leaves them behind, and they are, in effect, they are uh, preparing the fields. They are cultivating the fields there and preparing for, uh, for Paul's return to come back. And so as they are there in Ephesus, they are ministering. They're not going to do it the same way as Paul. They're not going to meet down at the synagogue and uh, confront all of the the synagogue leaders. They're not going to be preaching on the street corners and uh, and arguing with the people on uh, the town square, but they're going to be there uh, sewing their tents. That was their business, right? They were tent makers. They're going to be making their tents. They're going to be engaging in business. They're going to be having people coming and going. They're going to have uh, relationships that they're building with people, and they're going to be able to continue sharing the gospel with folks. They're going to be continue be able to continue showing Jesus in their lives and have an effect, having an impact on the people that is around them. And we're going to see how they do that here. But something interesting to me uh, in all of this is that the work that was being done wasn't just done by Paul. We tend to have this idea that God's work is just certain people that it's up to the missionary, the pastor, this person or that person. But as we go through the book of Acts, we see that there is uh, so many different personalities. There are so many different giftings and strengths and weaknesses and abilities and how God orders all of it. He puts it all together and he uses all of these things. If we start uh, measuring ourselves by one another, if we start measuring ourselves by Apostle Paul, if we start measuring ourselves by brother or sister so-and-so, we're going to get defeated, we're going to get discouraged, but God has made each of us unique. He's given each of us unique giftings, talents, and abilities to serve him where he would have us to serve him. And so our place as Christians isn't to uh, compare, it isn't to judge by one another, it isn't to set somebody else as the expectation for our lives, but it is to walk with God and follow him and allow him to do in our lives what he wishes to do in our lives. He doesn't want all of us to be Apostle Paul. He needs some of us to be as Aquila and Priscilla, uh, plying our trade, living day to day, being around people, rubbing shoulders with folks, having an impact with our lives. Uh, We're going to find with Apollos here in a minute that Aquila and Priscilla pull him off to the side. It seems almost as if after 
after they hear him at the church service or whatever, that they invite him over to dinner afterward and say, hey, come on over here, sit around the table, let's talk about this. Okay, That seems to be the way that they minister. That seems to be the way that they, much more easygoing, much more um, informal, right? You find other people, uh, and this is something I started to look at last week. We didn't get into a whole lot. But you start looking at other people in the book of Acts and the way that God used them and their unique personalities and their differences. Uh, Barnabas was the son of consolation. He was an encourager. There's a lot of, I don't think there's a single message that he's preached recorded in Scripture. There's not really any um, any record that we find of a whole lot of converts or anything. It doesn't follow his uh, his life and what he did, what his ministry was. But we find that he was the one that was constantly reaching out, giving people second chances. He was the one that gave Mark a second chance. He was the one that uh, vouched for Paul whenever everybody else was afraid of him. He was the one that was constantly just encouraging people along, and that was his personality. He had that warm, vibrant personality that uh, helped people along, encouraged them, uh, made them feel good, right? That's the way that he was. We find that Paul, of course, was the one that had great zeal, great tenacity. He was the one that spake boldly, that was willing to go toe-to-toe with anybody. No one was, uh, no one intimidated Paul. He could preach on the streets, he could preach on the... But very few people are like Paul. You find Silas. What do we know about Silas? He was Paul's traveling companion. There were several times that Paul left him behind to minister whenever Paul got ran out of town. Seems like he had a much more subdued personality. He wasn't uh, he wasn't near as abrasive. See, Silas didn't get run out of town. Paul did. They both got locked in jail, and Pilot or Silas, I put Paul and Silas together. Anyway, <laughs> Pilus. Pilus, there you go. So anyway, uh, Silas was singing and praising and praying along with Paul in the prison, right? But he had a much different personality. You look at Timothy, for instance. Timothy was timid. But he ended up being kind of Paul's crush worker. Okay? He ended up kind of being Paul's crush worker because Paul would uh, would come in and see all the, the newborn Christians, right? Then he would turn them over to Timothy to take care of them. And so Timothy had that softer spirit to him. He was able to patiently, carefully minister and work alongside of these people. He was able to uh, help work through several uh, several difficulties that arose, clashes between personalities and things, and Timothy was able to minister to those. We look at Luke. We don't know a whole lot about Luke, but he's the one that wrote the Gospel of Luke, and he's the one that wrote the book of Acts. He was a doctor, a physician, and he traveled with Paul. We don't find him preaching. We don't find him teaching. But we do find him recording all the events. He's the one that was the historian. He was the one that is taking down in intricate detail all of the things that's going on so that we have a record of the life of Christ in the early church. Not only that, with him being a physician, he's following along with Paul. And whenever Paul gets beat up for preaching, he needs someone to doctor his wounds. And there's, there's Luke. Uh, a lot of people think that Paul had persistent health problems that plagued him, and Luke continued with him and was ministering to him through those things, right? And so you find all of these different people, and there's a lot more that we could look at. I'm not going to for right now. 
But we find all these different people, different personalities, different talents, different giftings, different abilities, and each of them getting plugged into the work and doing something different. And so God has a place for each and every one of us. He has something for each and every one of us to do with the way that we were created. I know I'm guilty oftentimes of, and I've even prayed this and asked God, why am I like this? Okay? You know, I see different flaws, different things about myself, and I say, why am I like this? I'm like the potter, or the pottery saying to the potter, why is not making me thus, right? But God has made us the way that he has with the talents, giftings, abilities, and even the flaws for his purposes. And he can use us the way that we are. And so we see that with all these different people. And so we come down to verse number 24. Now I want to go back to verse 23. After he... Um, after he got to Jerusalem, he saluted the church. He went and um, gave a report at Antioch. That was the church that sent him out originally, right? Church at Antioch. He gave a report, spent some time. He got refreshed there, and then back again on his third journey. And so this is where we're going from his second missionary journey to his third missionary journey. And immediately after he leaves Antioch, he goes back through Galatia and Phrygia, which is the region that he was at on his first missionary journey and it says that he goes through them in order strengthening all the disciples strengthening and i said that all throughout paul's ministry there was a shift that took place at first it was evangelism but as he went further along it went kind of from evangelism to discipleship the great commission says that we are to uh we are to go and to preach the gospel to every creature right but we are also to teach them to observe all things. And if we're not careful, we emphasize seeing people saved, but we never actually go back and disciple them and see them grow. It's one reason why uh, church services and Bible study and all those things are so important is because this is where growth takes place. This is where we're learning scripture. This is where we're encouraging one another and things like this. And so what Paul is doing here, he's going back through all these churches and he is strengthening them. He's encouraging them. As we go through his writings, we find that repeatedly as he's writing to these churches, he's encouraging them to stick with it, to stay in the faith. He is telling them not to abandon the faith, not to be drawn aside, not to grow cold, not to grow apathetic. Because the, here's the thing, if we are not constantly and consistently around other Christians, and if we're not constantly, consistently being confronted by God's word, if we're not being encouraged and exhorted in our faith, we're going to grow cold, we're going to grow distant, and it won't be too long before we drift away from God altogether. And so Paul is constantly going back through and encouraging them, kind of going back a little bit of a, uh, a revivalist-type spirit. He's going back through these churches and checking on them and saying, how are, you, how are you getting along? How are you growing? Are you advancing in your walk with God? And he is encouraging them to stay fast, to continue going onward. And in the day and age which we live in, I think it's more important than it ever was because so many people are drifting away. There's so many different distractions. There are so many different things that we have to do. And it seems as if our walk with God is one of the first things that suffers. Whenever we get too busy, our prayer time goes out the window our Bible study goes out the window. We have so many different things that's going on inside of our head, so many different things that's got our attention, 
that we're not thinking about God. We're not meditating on his word. We're not seeking to follow his will. We're not uh, setting our affections on things above. We are so busy in the daily grind down here. And the first thing to go, the first thing to get thrown aside is our walk with God, our relationship with God, our pursuit of God. It's too easy to, to say, I just don't have time, right? But here's the deal. We need this constantly. We need this continually because we are human. The, the song says, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the one I love. Take my, look, here's my heart, take and seal it. Seal it for that chord spot. You remember the song? Mm-hmm. I know I butchered it, but anyway. Just be thankful I didn't try to sing it. <laughs> but anyway, that first part that I said, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. That's the way that each and every one of us are. Whether you will admit it or not, you are prone to wonder. And if you will be attentive to your walk with God, you'll see it ebbs and flows. You'll see that there are things that take you away from God. There are times that you lose your first love. And this is why it is so important that we have one another, that we have folks in our lives, that we have uh, iron to sharpen iron, right? Fellow Christians that will encourage us along to continue in our walk with God. Now, there's there's this, I don't know whether to call it a movement or not. Maybe it's always been around. But there's this idea that I don't need church. I can worship God anywhere. You all have heard that, right? But the truth of the matter is we do need the body. We do need one another. We need fellow Christians because that keeps us going, right? Even this morning, okay, and uh, not to... Not to point out our absence, but even with Les missing this morning, I feel like I'm missing my right arm. Right? Whenever folks aren't here, there is a difference, right? Even this week as I've been sick and everything, I was contemplating, just to be honest with you, like yesterday morning, I was contemplating just calling off church today. Saying, okay, I've been sick, I'm just going to forget. But whenever I'm missing... We have to cancel church, right? And I'm not saying that because I'm important or anything. It's, well, I'm the one up here talking. <laughs> but here's the thing. Whenever everybody else is missing, there's just as vital of a part that is missing, right? Each and every one of us contribute. Each and every one of us have something that we are giving to the body and that we're encouraging one another. We're helping one another. And whenever we're not doing that, there is a deficit, right? And so Paul is going back around to all of these believers and he wants to see them grow. He wants to see them uh, successful in their walk with God. He wants to see them making leaps and bounds ahead. And honestly, as a pastor here, this is my desire for everyone from this church is I want you all to do well. I want you to be growing in your walk with God. I want to see you uh, overcoming things that have beset you. I want to see you uh, having prayers answered. I want to see you uh, learning and growing in God's Word. I want to see those things. And that's what Paul was doing as he was going around and strengthening his disciples. Now we'll go ahead down to verse number 24. I plan on actually getting into chapter 19 today, but I don't believe we will. But anyway, um, down verse number 24, it says, And a certain Jew named Apollos, born at Alexandria, 
an eloquent man and mighty in the scriptures, came to Ephesus. This man was instructed in the way of the Lord and being fervent in the spirit, he spake and taught diligently the things of the Lord, knowing only the baptism of John. And he began uh, to speak boldly in the synagogue, whom when Aquila and Priscilla had, uh, had heard, they took him unto them and expounded unto him the way of God more perfectly. And when he was disposed to pass to Achaia, the brethren wrote, exhorting the disciples to receive him, who when he had come, helped them much, which had believed through grace. For he mightily convinced the Jews, and that publicly, showing by the scriptures that Jesus was Christ. And so here we're introduced, we talked about Apollos already a little bit, but here we're introduced to him. He is a Jewish believer. He's come out of Alexandria, which is down in Egypt. It was a center of learning. You have the Library of Alexandria, right? And so he was a very learned, learned man. But it says that as he was coming and he was preaching and he was teaching, that he knew only the baptism of John. So what was John's message as he came? What was it? Okay, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, right? And so basically John's message was, you need to prepare your hearts because the Lord is coming. And so he was pointing toward Jesus. He was saying, the Lord is coming. The people of Israel for a great amount of time had kind of lost sight of serving God. They had sunk down into their religion. They had went into their normal way of doing things and all. They had in many ways lost hope because the Romans were over them at that time. And so John burst on the scene, and he says, you need to repent. Repent is to have a change of mind, okay? You need to correct your thinking, right? Because the Messiah that's been promised and prophesied is coming. And so that was the message that he preached. And he baptized people with a baptism of repentance. This was their outward sign, their outward showing, because baptism is always an outward sign, outward showing, okay? That's, that's all baptism is. And it was their outward showing that they believed the message of John and that they were looking for the Messiah, okay? Whenever Jesus came, there were many of John's disciples that followed Jesus. They left John, followed after Jesus. Some of the disciples of John came to John concerned, saying, you know, many of the guys that were once with us is now with him. We're losing our numbers. And John said, I must decrease. He must increase. Even John, whenever he is finally killed by, uh, by Herod, I believe it is. When John is killed by Herod, I believe it was providential. I believe it was God allowed it to be done because as long as John stayed around, people would continue following him instead of Jesus. Okay? And so whenever we look at Apollos here, Apollos was basically following in John's footsteps. Apollos was preaching the message that John preached. He was, for whatever reason, I don't know where he was hidden at. I don't know where this was lost at. But apparently he didn't get the rest of the story. And I believe he was a saved man. He believed that the Messiah was coming, that God was getting ready to do something tremendous. And he knew that it was a spiritual kingdom that was coming. And that's important. I'll, I'll show you why here in a minute. 
But as he was going about zealously expounding the scriptures and telling about all these things and had all this knowledge, he crossed his paths with Aquila and Priscilla. Remember, Paul's not here. And Aquila and Priscilla hear him speak, and they get excited, I think. They say, we need to talk to this fellow. And they go to Apollos, and like I said earlier, I believe they probably probably invite him over for dinner or come over for coffee, do something, I don't know. And they sat down with him informally, non-controversially, and began to lay these things out that Paul had taught them. Right? Paul had went through the scriptures, and he showed all the ways that Jesus fulfilled the prophecies, right? He would preach to them Jesus from the Old Testament, like uh, Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch, right? And showing how Jesus was the fulfillment of all of these things. And so whenever... Aquila and Priscilla sat down with Apollos, who was very versed in the scriptures. They said, it seems like there is a few things that you haven't heard yet. There's a few things that you don't know yet. Let us share these with you. And this brings out two interesting things about this exchange. For this to have went the way that it did, Apollos had to be teachable. Right? Someone as well-versed and as zealous as Apollos was. I mean, he was he was standing before uh, the Jewish leaders. He was coming to, he was doing a lot of things the same way as Paul was. He was very forceful in his personality, but whenever Aquila and Priscilla came to him, he was willing to listen, hear what they had to say, realize it lined up with scripture, and he believed it. He had to be teachable. And the lesson for us from Apollos here is we have to be careful. We might be in, we might be incomplete in our knowledge in many places. We may be wrong some places. But I think that many of us, because of pride, because of uh, unteachable spirit, whatever, we would rather continue going going one wrong than to humble ourselves and be corrected. Right. And so for this to have went the way that it did, Apollos had to be teachable. But we look at Aquila and Priscilla and how they confronted him. They confronted him with great tact. They didn't come went to him and shout him down and say, hey, you're wrong or you're missing part of this. Or Isn't that how a lot of Christians tend to react today? Yeah. Tend to be confrontational, tend to be in your face and arrogant. And whenever you're that way, no one's going to listen to you. So this takes both sides. Someone has to be teachable, but the teacher also needs to be tactful. We need to be mindful of how we present ourselves, how we're teaching people. We might look at uh, uh, people around us, people that we know, family members or coworkers, or and we know that we have something that they need to hear. Maybe they believe a different religion, or maybe they uh, believe some wrong things about Christ or whatever, and we want to correct that. Well, how do we approach them with that? And if we don't do it with the right heart, if we don't do it with the right spirit, then there's going to be, uh, it's going to be a fruitless effort, okay? But whenever Aquila and Priscilla came to him, and it says they took him, took him unto them and expounded unto him the way of God more perfectly. I picture this as basically them coming to him and saying, okay, you're preaching this message of John. 
you're preaching that uh, the Messiah is going to come. You may have missed this. The Messiah already came. And like I said, they start laying all the scriptures out before him. They start telling him all this and he believes it. And by the end of it, we find that he is showing by the scriptures publicly that Jesus was the Christ. He gets his theology corrected. He he is then a, uh, a valuable asset to the church, right? But it took him being teachable, and it took some tent makers, some ordinary, average, everyday people to sit down calmly, patiently with him and discuss the things of God, clarify a few things. And it made a huge difference in Apollos. Uh, from there, Apollos goes to Corinth, whatever it says. He was disposed to pass to uh, Achaia. That is the region over at the southern part of Greece. That would have been where Corinth was, okay? And so Apollos goes to Corinth where Paul has recently left. He's now armed with a full understanding of the gospel and of the scriptures, and he is able to go and minister in Corinth. There are some that believe that Apollos actually pastored the church of Corinth. There's different uh, passages in, I believe it's in 1 Corinthians, that seem to indicate that. Okay? And so he went to Corinth, and he was able to minister. Paul wasn't there. Paul was doing other things. But Apollos was able to go over there. Right? And he was able to minister. And anyway, so you have Aquila and Priscilla in Ephesus. You have Apollos in Corinth. You have Paul traveling throughout the regions of Galatia, and he's coming back to Ephesus. He'll get there shortly. And so all these things going on, and as we're discussing this, it seems like it was a small region, but this is taking place in a huge region. This is taking place spanning Asia and Europe, right? And this is how the gospel went about spreading to the whole world, right? Corinth and Ephesus was two of the, the busiest commercial cities of that time. This is where everything was passing through. Everyone was passing through. And so for the Christians being there, people from all over the world was passing through those two cities and was hearing the gospel and taking it back to where they came from. And so it became almost like a, a satellite or a radio broadcasting to the world from those areas, right? But something else interesting I want to point out here, and then I'm going to have to close. Um, verse number 27, it says, And when he was disposed to pass into Achaia, the brethren wrote, exhorting the disciples to receive him. So where is he at whenever I'm, when I'm reading this verse? Where is he at? He's still in Ephesus, right? He's in Ephesus getting ready to travel to Corinth. But it says that the brethren wrote. So what's taking place in Ephesus already? Are you following me? Okay, so Paul came. He was there very briefly, just a week or so maybe. He met with them in the synagogue. They wanted him to stay. He said, I can't stay. I'm going to Jerusalem, right? Aquila and Priscilla stay behind. They meet up with Apollos. They're living, they're working, they're ministering there. 
And in Paul's absence, <coughs> in Paul's absence, there's now brethren in Ephesus. There's been people getting saved in Ephesus with Aquila and Priscilla being there, with Apollos being there, with Paul not being there. Not only are they being saved, but they are also meeting together. They're encouraging one another. And whenever Apollos is ready to pass onward and go to Corinth, they get together and write a note, write a letter on behalf of the church that is at Ephesus that Paul didn't start. And write a letter vouching for Apollos. And so as Apollos arrives in Corinth, he has a letter from the believers that's at Ephesus. Okay? Corinth doesn't even know this is going on over here, but Apollos comes with a letter, and in this letter, it's vouching for him. It's saying he was a great encouragement. He's a great believer. He's been preaching and teaching. He knows his stuff. Invite him into your midst and allow him to serve amongst you and be amongst you. Right? And this was a great practice in the early church or something that should be still practiced today that whenever a believer moves onward, they should be able to, to go to the next place with the support and the encouragement uh, of the, the church that they left behind, right? And so this is what has happened here. There's a church that has started in Paul's absence. They are vouching for Apollos. He goes to Corinth. He's strengthening and he's encouraging the people at Corinth. And Apollo, or not Apollos, Aquila and Priscilla are still ministering there in Ephesus. And then when we get to chapter 19, we're not going to get into this today because of time. But we get to chapter number 19 that Paul comes back to Ephesus. He comes back to Ephesus and he's ready to get to work. He's going to find a lot more people like Apollos. Apparently, Apollos had been there for a while. He had been preaching the baptism of John. He had been preaching the coming Messiah. And Paul finds believers, kind of. They're not saved at that time, but he finds people who are disciples. That's the word that's used. Finds people who are disciples, who are students of Apollos, basically, and John the Baptist. And Paul has to do similar to what Aquila and Priscilla did and explain to them the rest of the story, which they believe, they receive the Holy Spirit, they're baptized and they're added to the church, right? So anyway, with that, I better quit. Does anyone have any questions or comments, anything to add this morning? Uh, um, I think you've touched on uh, the, the, the message of, of uh, was that John the Baptist. When, uh, when this was happening with the uh, Paul and Apollos and, and Priscilla, all these things. Mm -hmm. Was that time John still alive or John was gone away? Well, John died before Jesus. Oh, okay. That's gone now. So John was, was long gone. Gone. But something that uh, I guess we'll cover it next week, but I'll go ahead and hit on it right now, is historians tell us that there was a sect, a religion that arose in that region uh, around that time that lasted for up until about the third or fourth century of people who followed John the Baptist, but not Jesus. Okay. So basically they were still, they were looking for Messiah, 
but they didn't believe that Jesus was the one that John was talking about. And that would have came back to them looking for a conquering king instead of a uh, instead of a sacrifice lamb. Okay, and so there were a lot of people. Whenever John said the kingdom of of God is at hand, and Jesus came, they said, "No, we're not satisfied with Jesus." And so they said, "Okay, we're still following after John. We're still looking for this kingdom. We're still looking for this Messiah." And they rejected Jesus. Okay, and so John had these disciples, I guess you would call it, that didn't listen to John whenever he says, behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. And they kind of picked and chose what they believed. They started a religion over it, and it persisted for, like I said, a, a couple centuries at least. And what we're going to get into in chapter number 19, whenever Paul comes to these men, verse number two, he says, have you received the Holy Ghost since you believed? And they said unto him, we have not so much heard whether there be any Holy Ghost. And he said unto them, what... Uh, Unto them, what then were you baptized? And they said, unto John's baptism. And this is where, this is where um, Paul then explains the rest of the story and tells about the Messiah that John was referring to and points out the scriptures of showing that Jesus wasn't just the conquering king, he was also the suffering lamb. And they believe, right? And those men believe they are baptized, and this idea of the, the Holy Spirit here, uh, he lays his hands on them, they receive the Spirit, okay? And the reason why, and I know I'm getting into next week's lesson, I guess, but the reason why he's laying his hands on them and giving them the Spirit in this way is showing the apostolic authority, for one thing, but it's also teaching all these other ones who are unwilling to believe in Jesus but had believed in John, showing them that this was of God. And every time that you find, uh, okay, he lays his hands on them, they receive the Spirit, and they speak in tongues, right? And every time you find speaking in tongues in Scripture, it is a sign. It is a sign to unbelieving Jews. It is a sign of judgment. And so basically, whenever Paul lays his hands on these men, and they receive the Spirit, and they speak in tongues— it is a sign to the other Jews that is refusing Jesus but has accepted John that if they continue to reject Christ, that judgment was coming on them. Okay? And so that's that's the, the context. That's the background behind all those things there. And so anyway, that's giving us just a little bit of insight of the the, the start of this as I said, kind of a religion there that accepted that there would be a Messiah, but not accepting the Messiah that God sent. Okay? But that, that, that brings me to, to think even Apollos has missed the Messiah as well. Mm -hmm. Because it seems like, yes, we believe uh, John is, is preaching, mm -hmm. and you said that time John is passed already. Mm -hmm. So Jesus is past as well. Right. So Apollos continued to to preach the message of, 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 of John, but he misses the, the, the Christ right. because even John himself confirmed with them, I'm not even able to, mm -hmm. to untie his shoes. So that's, mm -hmm. that's a step of saying, this is the person we are looking for. Mm -hmm. So I'm trying to connect and see how did Apollos was too much in John's preaching 
but miss the the the, 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 the actual preaching yeah. itself. Well, Apollos was out of Alexandria, right? Okay. Okay. Not necessarily out of the same region where John was ministering. He wasn't like following John around all over through the the Galilean wilderness and all yeah. that kind of thing. Uh, but he had heard John's message. It resonated with him. And maybe he'd only met John once. Maybe he'd only heard the message once. I don't know. Uh, but for whatever reason, maybe it was distance. Maybe he was separated from the events at Jerusalem, and he didn't know the rest of the story. Whatever it was, I don't know. But something that's interesting to me, and I might not have all the answers on this one, okay? So I'll just have to leave that there. But something interesting to me is with Apollos, uh, says that he believed, seems like he had the Holy Spirit, seems as if he was, uh, in a sense, he was saved. He was just not fully informed. There were some things that he was missing. But these other believers, or not other believers, these other disciples of John did not have the Holy Spirit. They were not saved. And so there was something different in what they believed. Okay? And this is where Christianity comes down to. You can believe many different things. But in order to be saved, you have to believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God that came to this earth to save sinful men. And that his death is sufficient to atone for your sin. You have to believe that. You can believe that he was a historical figure. You can even believe that he rose from the dead. You can believe many different things about Jesus, but unless you believe that he died for you and he's able to sit, forgive your sins and save your soul, you're not saved. And so with these disciples of John, I believe Apollos was looking for a spiritual kingdom. I believe the other guys were looking for a physical kingdom. I think that was the difference. Okay. Yes. Anything else? No. Okay. Let's go ahead and go to the Lord in prayer. We'll take a break. Dear Lord, we come to you today. Thank you for your blessings. Lord, we do thank you for this time that we've had in your word. And I just pray that it's been uh, helpful and encouraging to those who are here. I just pray that you would work in our hearts and our lives. Lord, just draw us ever closer to you, Lord. And Lord, I just pray that you be with the uh, be with each and every person that they would get exactly what they need from the services today. Lord, I just pray that you guide and strengthen me, help me, Lord, as I preach. And thank you for all you do in Jesus' name. And amen.